1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a plethora of genres. And you can play them on just about any digital listening device that you have in your hands, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. You Want to go read some erotica? Go get Special Forces, Gay Military Erotica, edited by Philip McKenzie Jr., or how about Susie's Sexy Stories by Susie Bright, or if you want to take a slightly different approach, how about Sex God, Exploring the Endless Connections Between Sexuality and Spirituality by Rob Bell. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program, I get a few nickels, that is enjoyable, to download your free audio book, just go to audibletrialcom other people. Again, that's audibletrialcom other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people.
0: just one person at just one time all right everybody
1: here we go again this is it this is other people this is you wearing headphones in public this is almost like talking to yourself without saying anything very nice to be with you today my guest is melissa broder she's a poet she's got a new collection out from publishing genius press it is called meat heart meat heart and the cover has meat cleavers all over it some of which are pink and it's a very arresting collection of poetry by a very talented poet and her name is melissa and her last name is broder so, she and I are going to be talking at length about a variety of subjects in just a moment. But first, uh, I want to talk briefly about Michael Fassbender's penis. And in conjunction with that, I want to talk about the concept of envy. So, I guess you could call uh, call it penis envy. Uh, but more broadly speaking, just plain old envy in general as it applies uh, to a variety of things. But, you know, perhaps to the writing life uh, most specifically. So, I don't know if you ever visit the Huffington Post, uh, that website. But for me... It is essentially a daily ritual Not every day, but most days I will uh, go over there and I will look at the main page And I will look at the headline And then I'll probably go over to the Drudge Report Immediately afterwards to look at the competing Ideological headline Just to see what the pundits will be screaming about On television that night Uh, Because I like to anticipate these things And get a sense of what the uh, Deranged national argument Is going to be about on any particular day Uh, But of course there's other stuff On uh, Huffington Post, and I've noticed uh, that they've started running a regular feature, for example, uh, on the bottom right-hand side of the homepage, where they will show you a photo of a beautiful celebrity, usually female, and they will talk about uh, her outfit. That's usually the case. And often it's about how risque it is, or how it's missing a a part, or how something has slipped. And uh, in reality, it's this brilliant and somewhat cruel trick designed to generate click through And uh, advertising revenue. So it'll say something like, you know, Scarlett Johansson's shocking cleavage or Jennifer Lopez and her controversial thong or something of that nature. Uh, And then there uh, are a variety of other celebrity related links right there on the homepage. And this morning, very early, if you can imagine me, I'm sitting there, it's pre dawn, it's still dark outside, and uh, I'm looking at the Huffington Post, and one of the headlines reads, uh, Charlize Theron praises Michael Fassbender's penis. Charlize Theron. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Theron or Therone. Charlize Therone praises Michael Fassbender's penis. And, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Michael Fassbender is an actor. He, uh, he was in, he was in the movie Inglorious Bastards, which was directed by Quentin Tarantino. And then, uh, more recently he was in a movie called Shame, which is a British film about sex addiction In which he did uh, a lot of full frontal nudity uh, and displayed what I hear is a very considerable member. Uh, I have not seen the film, but it got a lot of press, and uh, I have not seen Mr. Fassbender's sex organ. uh, But, uh, you know, and that's, you know, I want to see the movie. I honestly do. It sounds interesting, but I don't get out to the theater very often because I have a young child. And for those of you who don't have kids, once you have a kid, it's hard to go to the movies, or it gets a lot more difficult. Um, but you know, the fact that I have not seen this film and I have not seen, uh, Michael Fassbender's penis almost makes it more interesting because I keep hearing about it. Like it's some kind of legend. And then this morning it's very early and I'm just getting started and I'm barely awake. And now there's this headline telling me that Charlize Theron is publicly praising this guy's unit. So, of course, I click on this, and it turns out that there was some uh, award ceremony for the Human Rights Campaign happening in Los Angeles. It's some big event, and there are a lot of celebrities there. And uh, Charlize Theron is like, there's like a photo of her, and she's up on stage, and apparently she was accepting some award on behalf of some charity. And I guess uh, she co-stars with Mr. Fassbender in a movie called Prometheus, which is coming out this summer. And so she was up there on stage, and in this photo, she's literally, like, raising a glass, you know, like, a, offering a formal toast to this man's penis. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, reading this article, and, uh, you know, I guess there were big laughs, and uh, it, was, it was meant in jest, of course. And really, at the heart of it, it's just this light human interest story, uh, and there's not that much to it. But, of course, for me, sitting there, and this is really my point, for me sitting there uh, in the darkness... Of 5 a.m. it becomes this psychodrama where I'm reading this thing thinking to myself you know what is it like to be this guy what is it like to be Michael Fassbender in the world to be out in public and to socialize and to be sitting there in front of all these luminaries while Charlize Theron uh, offers a toast to your penis I'm actually serious here. And so I'm starting to get, and I'm also starting to get envious because, uh, I am not blessed in a similar way. Uh, I am an average, uh, white male rapidly careening towards age 40. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified (laughs) by my pastiness. And, uh, I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just not that guy. Very few people are. And, uh, you know, this guy, uh, he's good looking, obviously he's a movie star and uh, he's also British. Or he's Irish or something like that. So he's got the accent, uh, you know, like as if the penis isn't enough. He's also a movie star. He's also got the accent. He's very wealthy. And it is an embarrassment of riches. It is, uh, pun intended, a golden shower of riches, both genetic and otherwise. And so, uh, you know, I start to imagine his existence. And this is where it starts to get uh, at least quasi. Related to writing and fiction because you're imagining somebody else's existence and trying to uh, form some sort of empathic bond, even if it's just imaginary. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, is this guy like above the human condition? You know, because you do that sometimes, especially with the rich and famous and the uh, like, fabulously good-looking. You think to yourself, you know, this this is this is something that they they float above. It does not affect them. Uh, Of course, this is not true. But I, this is what I can tell myself, you know, and I'm imagining uh, the confidence that this man must have. You know, he's got a penis the size of his forearm. Uh, Charlize Theron is, is toasting it in public. He he must just walk the earth like a proud lion, just like a proud lion, just knowing that he has this gift. And now everybody knows it, and he has celebrated the world over, and the universe is rewarding him for his talents so you know and it can just escalate from there like what is it like when he goes to a party you know what is it like for this guy now today with all this news being out there and this movie being out there he walks in the door to party uh what happens like you got to believe that like 99 percent of the guys at the party uh must for at least a moment be thinking to (laughs) themselves "Be thinking to themselves like god damn it fassbender's here you know Uh, And and the women, like, Lord only knows what the women are thinking. So you get the idea. Like, this happens. uh, This is my mind state. Uh, And and in in, in addition to fascination and uh, jealousy, there is a certain rage involved that I'm not entirely fond of. Uh, You know, it's like this envy thing, uh, which starts out emotionally as, as a kind of curiosity, an itch you need to scratch. And then it escalates into something like jealousy and fear. And then uh, quickly it transitions into some sort of anger, some sort of quiet uh, fuck you as you're sitting there uh, with the blue light of your computer screen flickering against your face, thinking to yourself, you lucky bastard. And then it goes away and the flame goes out and the wave recedes uh, to mix up my metaphors a little bit. And then eventually you go on with your day, you know, knowing uh, that Charlize Theron will never praise your penis in public for as long as you both shall live ever. And that is the harsh reality. So what's my point? I don't know if there is a point just that, you know, envy, uh, it's a, it's a fact of life, but it's also, uh, lower, uh, on the, uh, human emotional scale. It exists at a lower realm and it's a common side effect. I think of the internet and the media in general. That's my point. This happens multiple times a day. Sometimes Because of the internet, because of television uh, You know, you read the news And you subject yourself to this stuff And uh, it makes me wonder uh, You know, would I be better off not knowing This story, not knowing about Charlize Or Michael Fassbender or any of it You know, and and Part of me thinks I probably would I probably would be happier uh, And I probably would be better off not knowing uh, About someone's controversial thong Or, Or maybe Maybe not, maybe that actually adds something to my life uh, who knows it's confusing and uh, or maybe it's all a wash you know, like maybe th- this is simply just life as we know it right now this is the human condition today and uh, I should just surrender and embrace it and quit trying to fight it and uh, maybe I should just dive in fearlessly and let it wash over me and I should just swim in the murky waters of the Huffington Post and try to be friends uh, at an abstract conceptual level uh, with the reality that is Michael Fassbender's
2: How to be persistent? How to stalk? How to stalk nicely? Um, okay, you know, like so that wait, line.
1: So wait, stop. stop here. <laughs> how, how do you stalk nicely? Let's 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 learn this.
2: You stalk nicely by um, you don't you don't stalk people um, regarding something that they will never be interested in. Um, so you know, even though as I said, I cast a wide net. If I send an email blast, um, it's going to be to relevant people, um, and so. I feel like that sort of gives you carte blanche to stalk a little bit. Um, you know, if you really believe that somebody's going to be interested in something. It's like, you know, you'd prefer to have you prefer to have like a good-looking stalker. Like I wouldn't mind having a stalker if like, you know, if it's like a sexy stalker and like a relevant stalker and um, you know, um a stalker who has who shares my interests. Like I I might feel a little better than if it's a stalker I'm totally not attracted to and um, you know, and we don't we don't have any common interests, um, that that sort of thing.
1: Right. So okay, I, I kind of get that. And then yeah, uh, as far as poetry goes, uh, when did you start with this? Like, how did you become a poet? You know what I'm saying? Like, when do you make that decision, right. and when do you start calling yourself a poet? Because um, even more so, I think than than being like a writer of fiction or nonfiction, uh, it's a certain psychological step that seems like uh, that it might be a bit. Um, larger to make i don't know maybe that's just how i imagine it but to start calling yourself a poet feels like kind of a grand gesture in some way or you know am i misreading it
2: definitely i don't know if i i'm like do i call myself a poet i guess i do i don't really love that word i don't i don't know when you said that when you said poet i kind of got a little bit of a shudder
1: yeah it's um, a little silly it's like i'm a poet you know like I sometimes, yeah. when, when people ask me, like, like let me, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll be honest with you. Like, sometimes when people ask me what I do, as a joke, I say I'm a poet and I say it deadpan, not because I'm trying to, <laughs> not, not because I'm trying to like mock poets or poetry, but just because I love to see what kind of reaction it gets. You know, people are like, oh, you know, like, I, I just think they're
2: our, like, ew.
1: Yeah. Or, or just like, it's, yeah, they
2: it's, back away they have, slowly.
1: They have no idea how to respond. Like, in our culture, uh, you know, it's just, it's become so, of such, uh, peripheral interest to most people that, uh, I don't think people Oh,
2: don't would... tell me that.
1: No, but I mean, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> no, I, I know, I, know. I, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. I just think that's a fact. And I, I just, uh, I think it's of just, I don't think people know how to respond to it even, you know?
2: Yeah, no, I was actually just thinking, I was like, all right, so the word poet don't love it. I'm like, do I like, do I like the word poetry? Like, do I want to be, um, I don't know. Um, like the way I got into it was, um, in, I was eight, and um, at my school the year before we had been given these hardback books to write um, stories in, and my story wasn't good. But um, so then the next year I was in third grade and I was eight, and my teacher had like leftover hardback books, and I was kind of a, um, like a very like really oversensitive kid, being a poet, um, you know, like of being really over oversensitive and, um, you know, like a nose picker and just like, you know, trying to kind of like find ways to comfort myself. And um, so I think the teacher saw this and she saw that like poetry, like writing po writing poems for whatever reason, I was good at it. They all rhymed and I could rhyme really well. And um, so she like, gave me a hardback book, one of these blank books to write them in. So that's, I think, when I first sort of said to myself, I was a poet, you know?
1: Yeah, I was I was actually uh, a really good rhymer as a kid, too. I was like really into You that. are? Yes, I had that. I, I, you know, I was kind of a nose picker, too. Maybe not that.
2: You weren't, what do you mean kind, like one nostril?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Just, I dabbled. I don't think I was, I don't think I was big into it, but I definitely yeah. rhymed, and I remember... Being like really fixated on Shell Silverstein, like, uh, and I remember this book called "Rolling Harvey Down the Hill," which was all about this like f- really fat kid that all these other kids like rolled down a hill. Isn't that weird? It's by weird... Shell? No, no, no. It was by someone. Okay,
2: else. I don't remember that one. Yeah,
1: no, it was a weird book. I just it, and for some reason that sticks in my head, and I I don't even really know why, other than maybe that it made me laugh. But um, I had a fixation on that in elementary school.
2: I feel like now, like you just couldn't get away with rolling Harvey down a hill.
1: No, be, it would be as wouldn't a children's be, book. No, it wouldn't be politically correct. And and you know what? No, I, I, I could be misremembering it. I just remember like you know, <laughs> Harvey was he was big. He rolled him. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if it was like children torturing Harvey. I think it was more like you know, Harvey was a giant or something. I'll, I'll have to reread it. You know, I'll get. A he boy.
2: enjoyed the rolling.
1: Maybe, maybe. Um, I shouldn't have even brought it up because I don't remember it other than its title, and I remember Harvey, and I remember him rolling. Right. Um,
2: P- Picture Harvey rolling.
1: Yeah. So, so here's okay. I want to I want to give you some sort of uh, I want to give you my take on poetry in okay the the in in contemporary times or like a, just a, a certain aspect of it. And I've had this conversation with poet friends of mine uh, before, where I've said, you know, in a lot of ways this is actually a really good time to be a poet in terms of getting your work in front of people. And I feel like that I feel like poetry plays better online and in digital form than a lot of other forms of writing. Like I feel like like a a short story is hard for me to get through on a computer screen. Long form can be really hard unless it's extremely gripping, but a poem because, uh, you know, it's often digestible in five minutes or less. Um, there's something about it that I feel, you know, and people can share it easily online. Like, does that aspect of it appeal to you or does that totally turn you off?
2: Um, the aspect is that it's, that it, that it may be easier than a story to read online or just in like online poetry in and of itself versus the printed versus printed on a page. I mean, I like it all. I love the internet. I mean, I hate it. You know, it's like, it's killing me. Um, but, um, you know, I, it, it is my drug, but, um, but I love inter- I love the internet for poetry, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and,
1: um, I mean, it gives you if if all you had was print, you know, like you would have such a you would have a, a much harder time reaching a lot of people t- today. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, 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 and I guess it's like, I guess it, the, the two things go hand in hand. You know, the, if all you had was print, then we wouldn't have the internet, and you know, it would be kind of yeah. a moot point. But I, I'm just I just feel like you have an option or an opportunity as a poet if you have a little bit of hustle and understand. Um, you know, how to market yourself a little bit, uh, or however you want to put it, you have an opportunity to, to reach a lot of people with your work in ways that you might not previously have been able to.
2: You do. I mean, um, you know, I always wonder, like, those literary magazines with, like, you know, like a boat, like, it'll have, like, a sailboat on a cover, or a very, like, a muted mm-hmm. hill. Um, you know, I'm like, do do people read these? I don't know. Have they ever read them? Um, now, you can, like, okay, so you get a poem online, right? Like your poem is published online and then you social mediaize it. So like you'll Facebook it and then you get all these likes. And what I don't know if people are actually reading it or just liking it, probably, you know, I'd say like maybe one fifth are actually reading it. So you get like 15 likes. So you're like, all right, three people read the poem. Um, You know, that's awesome. Um, I mean, I think also though, there is like in terms of like the ego for for me personally, like some the other, recently I got a poem published on a site and I was very excited. It was somewhere I really wanted it to be published. And then I quickly social mediaized it. And then it became like about how many likes it got. You know what I'm saying? Like the experience went through like multiple filters. It wasn't just about the joy of getting published. It was like, oh, no, why didn't this person like it? And, you know, so there is that sort of element that's negative. But I think in general, in terms of, you know, eyes, it's really good.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, know. And it's it's funny to hear you talk about that because like counting likes and retweets and stuff like that is such a pitiful part of modern life, but I think it's so common.
2: <laughs> I know. It hurts. Uh, like, I feel like I'm in terrible. a Twitter slump right now. I'm 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 kind of upset about it. I'm I'm sort of sad. I'm feeling as though I don't know. Like maybe are you, if you're in front of a computer, maybe you want to look at some of my most recent tweets and tell me if you think I'm on a downward spiral. We could talk about that.
1: <laughs> What's your Twitter handle?
2: I'm Melissa Broder. Here, I'll log on too, and we can like talk about them right. um, together. Because I don't know. I'm just I I used to have um, an editor actually who like he's um, a friend of mine, and he would edit the tweets. Um, Like, I'd send him a draft, but lately I've sort of been freeballing it, if you will, and I don't know. I feel like, like, let's see. Yep, no, nothing. I tweeted twice this afternoon, nothing, no retweets, no favorites.
1: Let's see. I uh, spelled
2: Lego wrong in a tweet.
1: Let's see your, uh, here here are your two tweets. Uh, If a black rose grows out of the wall, you have to get inside it. And then the other one is, accidentally euthanized a dog by talking about a shroom trip from 98 where all the traffic lights were Legos.
2: Yes. And I spelled Legos like ego, so that could be part of the lack of attention.
1: <laughs> so, okay. So this, this kind of tweeting, it, it reminds me of certain people, uh, certain writers I know. Like some writers go this way where it's like, uh, I don't even know how to, what adjective to use to describe it, where it's like poetic or it's abstract or it's, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not totally. Like, so this is how you always tweet.
2: Um, yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, in the sense that I prefer non-reality based tweeting. So I guess you could call it poetic. Like, um, like I, I don't want to see news, you know, like I use Facebook and Twitter really differently. Um, like, like this is sort of a project for me or a, like an extension of my writing, whereas Facebook is sort of just like, can I curse on here?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: On this so Facebook is more like a shithole where I just sort of dump everything, and Twitter I, I craft.
1: Okay, yeah. So I mean, because that's another thing I feel like you know, uh, with poetry, uh, and I guess with any writer, like it can be a creative project, like you say, It can be viewed that way, and it sort of freaks me out when I think about all these people and all these tweets and like how they're going to be. Uh, you know, did you did you read about how? Um, God, what is it? The National Archives or what is it that they're like logging all of these tweets onto like hard drives and saving them as like part of the historical record? Really? Uh, yes. So, you know, they're going to be searchable is the is the point. So that later in history, like historians can go through the Twitter archives and like if they wanted to search, um, you know, about some particular, you know, especially uh, I'm thinking about some big event, you know, like the Arab Spring or something. They could search through Twitter and see what people were saying at the time just by like using the hashtags and whatever, you know. So I don't know. It just it sort of freaks me out. It's just the volume of it. And
2: that's a lot of volume. It's like really dumb microfiche.
1: Or yeah. Something. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's hard to wrap my head around. That's what I think. I, I get like mentally overwhelmed just thinking about that. Yeah. Um, no, I hear you. So, uh, Let's talk about Le Petite Zine. Right. You're you're uh, you know editing this zine, Le Petite Zine. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you manage to balance it all?
2: Um, I'm have ne- never been a good relaxer. Like if I want to relax, it has to be like enforced relaxation, you know. So, um, because if I fi- I find that if I keep myself moving and busy, then I never have to feel so um so (laughs) that's
1: very candid (laughs)
2: yes
1: (laughs) it's all about it's all about numbness you know let's just stay as numb as possible
2: yeah that's how I so I can like I, I don't have to feel and so um so it comes in handy for that to have so much going on
1: but don't you think I mean obviously we need to feel at some point is that like what happens with the writing is that like the outlet for that
2: yeah I think so. It's a safe, it's a safe place. And, you know, I mean, I feel all the time, you know, but, 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 um, I prefer not to, (laughs) no, I don't, and actually, I don't even know if that's true. I think it's just habitual, you know, like it goes back to being the sensitive nose picker, you know, like if you can like feel nothing or like, I don't know, it's, um, you know, another, another outlet, another device.
1: Are you, are you a workaholic?
2: Hmm. I think I'm my uh, moving in staying in motion alcoholic. Yes.
1: So does that mean? I mean, like, describe it then. I mean, like, does this mean that you, you like to constantly be giving yourself projects? Does this mean you love yes. to, you love to travel, or do you love like? Are you tra- I
2: don't like traveling. You don't. Um, no, because then I'm not in control.
1: Okay. So you like, like um, you like to be in control. You're type A. Type A.
2: Type A. Type A yes.
1: Okay. So how else does it manifest? You know, you don't like to travel. You like to have like structure. Are you a list maker?
2: I'm a list maker. Um, I'm an eater of the same foods. um, Repetitively, you know, like a ritualist. I'm a ritualist. It's like trying to control the, you know, abyss by like, um, you know, eating the same yogurt like twice a day.
1: So that's your food? Um, Is it yogurt? I was, you know, it, it begs the question. Like, do you have like, what are your foods?
2: Okay. So my foods, well, like my faves are, um, I like, I like this Greek yogurt a lot. I'm like really into it. Um, a lot of people are into it, I think. So, um, so like I'm into Greek yogurt. Well, what is um, it? I don't even,
1: I don't even know what it is. I'm, I'm out of the, the loop. You
2: don't here. know what Greek, you live in LA and you don't know what Greek yogurt is?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard, really? I think I've heard of it, but I've just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into it. What's, what's the deal? It's with like
2: it? a really, it's like a really thick yogurt. Um, and they strain out all of the milk. Or like a lot. I mean, they can't strain out all the milk because then there wouldn't be any there. But they like strain out a lot of it, so you're just left with this incredibly thick yogurt. And I put a lot of artificial sweetener in it and mix it up. And it's sort of like a an like an almost like an ice cream type experience. Um, I also like have a tendency to eat a lot of these things called Vita muffins, which are. and I like the chocolate ones because it's kind of like eating, like, junk food that's healthy. And I like to eat those all the time. I eat a lot of sweet potatoes. Um, those are, like, some of my, my foods that I eat every day. Like, you, I definitely eat a sweet potato every night.
1: Are you, okay, are you a ritualist? With my and, dinner. Are you a ritualist about what you wear, too? Does it, like, does that factor in? Um,
2: hmm. I mean, I'm not like Charlie Brown, like, where if you go in my closet, I have, like, 20 of the same <laughs> shirt. but um i definitely um i wear a lot of black um and i like fashion a lot Um,
1: you you do okay i do like do you do you sit around like do you feel like you have a look or a personal style that you cultivate
2: (laughs) I like it because I feel like that also kind of yeah. Like I like to feel like I have a, a personal style because it that also kind of tethers me away from a business or disintegration. By the way, I, I saw that you just followed me on Twitter, so I just followed you back.
0: Oh wow! And I
2: see, and I see that you're wearing an air defense T-shirt and a mask. We're both wearing masks in Twitter, so yeah, yeah. That, uh, um, I don't like? wear my mask every day though.
1: Yeah, no, I I just you know for some reason that photo makes me laugh. I've always kind of like clung to it as an avatar.
2: No, it's a good one. Masks are good. Um, I don't wear my sleep mask every day, only on Twitter and to sleep. But um, but yeah, like having a style that I can sort of think I, I can wrap my head around, like it's, um, I don't know, I guess it's it probably doesn't really exist in reality, but like to me, and I probably couldn't even define it to you, but I feel better about the world when like I feel like my outfit is together. Um, you know, and I know it's false. I know it can all be, be taken away at any moment. I mean, I, I know that, but I guess I don't really know that. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Okay. But, you know, it, it's sort of a false sense. It's a sense of – it's a nice sense of safety um, in, like, girl look good, you know?
1: <laughs> I get that. And, okay, so here's the thing, though. Do you uh, – because, like, as far as, like, fashion goes or as, like, clothing goes, I just want to blend in. So, like, if everyone oh, you do oh, yeah, if everyone really oh, like, like beyond why it doesn't matter. Well,
2: I'm sorry, I said that so judgmentally.
1: No, 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 no. It's just if everybody is wearing uh, like formal wear, I will want to be dressed formally. If everybody's wearing, you know, whatever it is, I, I tend to adopt the fashion habits almost subconsciously of the environment in which I live. So, like, when I moved to Colorado to go to college, for instance, I was this kid from Indiana. Uh, wearing like you know a baseball hat and like chewing tobacco, I was kind of like a, a hayseed. And then all of a sudden, I'm in Colorado, and like within a year, I was a hippie and I was into skiing. And I had never skied before in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I just kind of mutated because I
2: in was, Boulder.
1: Yes. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was just too painful. It was like too painful to not to stand out. I can't. St- you know, I just want to blend. I do not want to be noticed, and I want to sort of like uh, you know. Fade into the background.
2: <laughs> I mean, okay, I hear that to some extent. Like, like for me, it's more like to quiet my head. Like, it's not even like, okay. And actually I did a Boulder move years ago. I only was in, I only lived there for like a month, but I like when I moved there, I like bought a mountain bike, like, um, I jeeped out there, you know, like I thought like if I could like, and then I ended up actually moving to San Francisco for a few years, but like, I thought that if I could like live in Boulder and like have the chill wear, you know, like the chill duds, then like I could be chill, you know, like I could sort of fix it from the outside but it didn't that didn't work but um so I think for me though it's less about blending in. like I definitely with my clothes like you know I definitely want to look hot like I don't want to not stand out as hot like I'm like okay you know I want to look good but um it's more about like trying to quiet my head rather than um you know rather than than blend then blending in
1: so, okay. So I'm, I'm a little confused. Like when you say you, you want to dress a certain way and you want to look hot right. and you want to stand out a little bit, how does that quiet your head?
2: Well, because, you know, it's like self-esteem. It's oh, like okay. a false sense. Right,
0: right, You okay. know, it's
2: like I, I deserve to be on this planet today because I look good. Right. I mean, it's obviously completely fake and, and not real, but, um, but it's a quick fix.
1: Okay, so uh, the next thing that I want to uh, get to is I want to get to into your childhood. I want to know about where, <laughs> where you come from, like where where were you born, like where where did you originate?
2: I was born and raised in um, a small town outside of Philadelphia called Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Um, yes, that is where I'm from. Okay, and
1: what's that like?
2: Um, okay, it's part of this part of the suburbs of Philly that are um it's called the main line and it's sort of like old school wasps and like new money Jews is basically the deal of how it shakes that de- is is like the demographics um and there's a lot of like j crew and a lot of lacrosse and um you know and and I was a nose picker like it, it was, it didn't really work um you know but i don't know it's funny like i didn't feel very comfortable in that environment. However, um, I don't know whether it was like the discomfort came before where I grew up or the comfort or the where I grew up came. You know what I'm saying? Like I like would there if I'd lived on a commune like in, you know, the desert in Israel, like, I mean, I guess what would I have been different? I don't know. Anyway, would so, I've needed to make art Would I've had the discomfort that because I feel like um, I mean, I don't use artist therapy, but I feel like the comp- the compulsion to make make art comes out of that sort of being like a, a clam with sand in its shell, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, were you like an outcast, like socially? Were you, uh, did you have a lot of friends when you were growing up or were you sort of a loner?
2: I did have friends. I was not, um, I was not a pariah or anything or, um, I did. I, I always had friends. Um, but, um, I guess it was more like a discomfort in the body or, like, just existing, you know? Like, it wasn't – I went to a very small school. I went to an all-girls school for 13 years, and there were only 40 girls in a class. So I was really removed from a lot of that sort of – I mean, there were cliques and stuff like that, but because I'd been there for so long, I couldn't really be shunned, you know? Like, if you're there from age 5 to age 17, like, you kind of – you're part of the fabric. Um, So I didn't really have to deal with a lot of that, like – clickiness and, um, sort of, I guess like breakfast club type stuff. I don't know if that even really exists, but you know, there were no boys there, which was nice. You know, you could look like crap. Um, you could like, and you could, and it's funny actually, because, um, I was talking with a friend about this and like, um, in terms of like being a competitive person or competitive in, in my work or, in my career or something like sometimes I don't even see really men as competition or men as even real because I didn't grow up competing with them, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like, what's that like to grow up from the time you were five until the time you were 17, you never went to school with, with boys. Mm -mm. So how did you meet boys in high school? Like what, what happened when you hit puberty? Were you just like, I guess there was a boy's school somewhere that you guys
2: kind of like mixed with or something. Yeah, there were boy's schools and we would have like dances and stuff. Um, And so I would meet boys there. I'm trying to think like where – that's like mostly how we would meet boys or like through friends at like public school and stuff. Um, So I did deal with – I mean I did like interact with boys, but it was not like – but not like Monday through Friday, 9 to – or 8 to – eight to four, eight to five, eight to six, you know? yeah, but like boys mean, were just never part of it.
1: Yeah, but in some ways it was like kind of, I mean, I can see that kind of being a relief. It's less pressure, you know? You can get to yeah. just sort of relax into yourself more like a, as an adolescent.
2: I think to some extent, yes, definitely. Um, like I was thinking like if I wanted to have, if I had kids, would I, or if I had a girl, would I send her to all-girls school? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Because you do, you But also, I definitely
2: think... It, sorry,
1: was, go on. I was going to say, you just, you miss out on some of the uh, electricity, you know, or whatever you want to call it. Cause I can remember being in high school and like having some sort of crush and like seeing that person in the hallway and, you know, that's sort of fun.
2: And I like want that electricity. Like, I feel like I'm still an adolescent. I don't know that it's necessarily because I went to all girls school. Um, because I don't think like all 40 girls in my class are still like, you know, think about boys the way a 13 year old girl, like I still call them boys, you know, um, but, and I'm 32, but like you know, in my poems, like boys always, boys are often appearing as boys. Um, you know, there's like altar boys. But so I don't know if that's why. But I feel like that electricity. I'm like yes, like love that electricity. Like totally romanticize that electricity. Like that electricity seems awesome.
1: Yeah, well, no, it's it's a heightened time. You know, like when you're when you're a teenager and. I don't know. Like when I was going through it, I didn't feel like it was happening, you know, because I felt like, yeah. I feel like maybe the experience had been mediated so much or like people had told me to expect it so much that I was expecting more than what actually happened. Do you know what I'm saying? Like people like prepare you for adolescence with all this like talk about how crazy it's going to be. And then like you get there and you're like, uh, kind of bored and you know, like, um, I just, I, I always kind of felt like it was something of an anticlimax and then. In retrospect, I, you know, I can see myself at that at those ages and like the certain things that I did and maybe, you know, maybe it was actually true. Does that make any sense?
2: Yes. You just like, yes, it just didn't look the way you were told it was going to look.
1: Right. Maybe that was it. But, you know, so you, were you like a particularly angsty teenage girl or were you, you know, were you, I assume you were writing poetry about boys that you were into and stuff and as a teenager?
2: Yeah, like really bad poetry.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. Does anybody, really does, it, does anybody besides like Rambo write really good poetry as a teenager? I mean, does it even happen?
2: Right. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Cause it, it was, it was some bad, it was some bad situation, but, um, yeah, I think I was very anxious um, and just, but like, again, like more just like get me out of my skin, you know, um, like this discomfort with, with the body. Um, which I think a lot of girls go through, you know? Yeah. Did
1: you have like, I mean, was this like like weight issues or was it like just the, the changing body during adolescence or I guess all of it?
2: It was like the not changing body. Oh, okay. It was like, when's the body? It's like, the body better change really soon. You know, it was like, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret kind of deal. <laughs> um, you know, it was like the not changing body and like um, sort of, um Yeah. So, you know, like I pierced my own belly button, you know, trying to make something change, something happen. You know, pierce like five thingies in my ear with ice, you know.
1: Wait, you pier- you it. pierced your own belly button?
2: I did. I how did, did.
1: How did that go down?
2: Um, Ice, sewing needle, matches. Oh. Yeah. Oh.
1: Uh, and did you draw blood? I assume there was blood involved. in
2: Totally. Um I mean the thing is cuz it's like again I think you know what I think that's about control right it's like when you're that age like you just have no control like I always I always dreamed of like you know having my own place i didn't even know what i would do there i just wanted my own my own place so if you can't if you have like so little control over everything like the one thing you do have control over is like your body and how it looks sort of you know i mean you don't really have control of like your dna and you don't have control of like how things are progressing but if you want to put like a a ring in your belly button you can do that you have control of that
1: yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's continue with your biography just because, uh, I'm you know curious about like you going to college and you know, how that formed you and everything else. So like you leave Bryn Mawr, you get out of this, you know, cloistered 40 girl, uh, yes. school and then off you go to,
2: I went to Tufts university, which is, um, outside of Boston. Okay. And, um,
1: was it, was it like being, I mean, this, and this is a co-ed university. So like suddenly you were like loosed into the world, um, with the boys. Yeah. Like, did you go completely nuts?
2: Um, I mean, I had sort of, you know, I had definitely like, I was not a virgin when I went to college, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I had already, you know, i had had experiences with boys, so I didn't go nuts in that way. But, um, I think it was like my, like approval seeking and attention seeking. It was like, you know, it was, it was a great. It was a great, like, forest, like, it was sort of a, a fertile field. And I also feel like physically I came into my own a lot then. So it was, like, really nice to get that sort of feedback, you know? Um,
1: so, wait, like, you, yeah. fin- you finally, like, blossomed into a young woman as a freshman? Exactly. Okay. And I,
2: like, loved it. And, um, yeah, you know, and then there's a big chunk of my life where um, where, well, yeah, Yes, I was studying English and um I was there for four years and um you know, I was mostly um mostly on drugs, you know, the whole time and um drinking and it was fun and would just, you know, like go to I would go to Walden Pond. I was I was like I like okay, because I had gone to this all girls school, I was sort of a late bloomer in like the um in the sense of, like, like black light posters and things like that. Like, I had never really, like, gotten in. So I got, like, really into, like, the whole, like, we'll call it black light poster culture when I was in college. Um, you know, like, I would go around asking people if they knew what was really going on. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, things like that. You know, I, I went to Pink Floyd laser light shows, like, you know, every weekend, the same one. And, um, you know, like would, would trip in parks and, um, which is actually funny that I just tweeted about shrooming today because I haven't talked about that in like forever.
1: Yeah. Okay. But, so um, wait, so wait, so this is 98. I think I
2: deleted that tweet though, but.
1: Did you yeah. na- accidentally euthanize the dog by talking about a shroom trip from 98 where all the traffic lights were Legos?
2: Yeah. I deleted it because I didn't like it.
1: But what about the but, shroom trip? Was it based on reality?
2: Um, Nothing's based on reality. My Twitter feed—I'd never tell the truth on Twitter. <laughs>
1: okay. So, but this phase of your life—you know, you're college—you're yeah. in college. You're in exper- You're in an experimental phase. As so many.
2: I'm in an experimental phase.
1: And uh, um, when you say you were on drugs, like, was it ever? Did it ever escalate to the level of being a problem, or were you simply just having a good time?
2: We'll just leave it at um, you know, I um, I'm no longer. I no longer do. We'll just leave it at
1: that. At, any, at anything. Like you don't drink or do drugs at all? No. It's all you so you're sober? Yes, I am. Okay. Um
2: as of uh first seven years.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. So, yeah. So, so I mean I don't yeah, you know, I don't want to press if you don't want to talk about it, but like you did you um like how did that happen? You just decided to do it or did you get treatment or anything like that or?
2: another podcast <laughs> or perhaps, a, yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's in my work, like, um, you know, my experience with that, but, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, so it's hard, it's hard for me to like, tell my, I guess my trajectory and cause that's such a big part of my trajectory, but at the same time, um, you know, it's like, I feel like the, the, um, the people who help me, um, I don't really. I never want it to be that I speak for them, if that makes any sense. Like, I never want to be, like, the, rep- the representative. So I sort of I keep that part quiet. Like, I mean, I get, I, and I, I always talk about it, like, in terms of um, without specifics. Like, like I mean, it really is the best thing that's ever happened to me, and it's a way of life for me. Um, and it really informs who I am, and, and it's given me um, more comfort and peace than I ever knew before I even— picked up a drink or picked up a drug. I will say that. And, you know, I always imagined that life would be like boring or dull and that like, you know, this, this stuff was like, it was my best friend. it was like, um, really just a way to, uh, cocoon from the world and to manufacture fascination. And like, you know, if you're going to be happy, why not be happier? If you're going to be sad, why not be happy? You know, and all these things, this way of kind of controlling my world. And, um, you know, but since, 2005 and and with the work that I do um and continue to do it um you know and 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 the people who have helped me um and continue to be my friends um you know it um it's really the most comfortable I've ever felt in my skin in my life and um
1: did yeah. you did you find it like uh you know when you were uh, you know a young college student or an, you know an aspiring writer or someone who was gravitated toward the arts, which I assume you did at, you know, at that age, like, did you you find yourself idolizing certain writers who had lived to excess or, you know, did you embrace that part of it? and, And do you feel like that might've informed your own choices?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think I was who I was and it was just a matter of time. I think for me, like, you know, you know, I, I mean, I can even, even today, I can turn anything into a jug. You know, like we've how much we spent like what ten minutes of this interview talking about Twitter. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we are who we are, and like our makeup is our makeup. So I think like, but I think I was drawn and am drawn to people who are are drawn to darkness and drawn to excesses and and escapists and people who also you know have a discomfort in their own skin. I think the difference. Today versus then, obviously, I'm, well, I'm, you know, I'm older, um, but I think that it's, um, I don't romanticize, like, I don't believe that you need to be, to do any drugs or any, or, or I don't believe you need to do anything to be creative or to access those places. Like, I don't re- regret any of my experiences, and I do think they have informed my creativity, absolutely, absolutely. But, um, I also think that like you can access access that stuff without it, and um you know there's a there's definitely like a, a romanticizing um of you know um well these in in i mean you know there's a there can be a romanticizing of of drugs and alcohol and suicide and and mental illness, and um I think you can be creative and be edgy and and your work can have an edge and darkness, and you can still like. Be kind to the people around you um, or do your best to and, like, try to be, like, kind to yourself and, and not be – like, not live on edge even. You know, I, I used to think I had to live on edge to have edgy work, and I don't think that's the case
1: No, no. So one, of the, one of the phrases that you said earlier that really, like, you know, rung out in my mind was manufacturing fascination. Yeah. I mean, that is, like, the job of so many – Young people and college students, you know, like I just remember, like I I think about my own experiences, like with my friends where it was almost like we were terrified of being bored or terrified of being left alone with our minds. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like it was totally anything to sort of like medicate against that or to create some sort of and also like there's a desire at a certain age, I think, you know, like it's like. You know, uh, is, is 19 years old late adolescence or is that just adolescence? I don't even know how to categorize it, but it's around that age where I feel like.
2: It's all late adolescence. I'm still a late adolescent. Yeah,
1: no. You... But anyway,
2: yes, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah.
1: it feels like that time in life, uh, you know, and I don't know if it's all just biological or whatever, or if it has something to do with circumstances, too. But I felt like, I, you know, you want the stakes to be high. You want something incredible to happen. You know, like, yes. and I think people always kind of want that, but I feel like when you're young and the world is kind of wide open before you, it's even more so. And so you're doing things and acting in certain ways that, you know, you're hoping might facilitate that. I mean, yeah, does that ring true to you?
2: Definitely. That magical experience. And I think the difference, you know, like between... Having the experiences versus somebody who kind of can't get out of of what they're, what they get into is, um, you know, a, a sense of, I mean, there's that sense of the world is, the world is not enough as it is. I mean, that, I think a lot of artists feel that way. That's why we, we create. But, um, you know, in terms of like, so, you know, in terms of turning to things that like outside of us to like to, um, to create those experiences, like when the experience isn't happening, I think it's like, um, you know, you can, I don't know, I I know for myself, like I can, I can get like, like, I love highs, you know, but there's always a cost, like there's the cost of, of returning to reality. Um, so it's like, even today, you know, even completely sober, like how can you, um, how can... How can I not get like too excited, (laughs) you know, um, and, and kind of contain that desire and stay on some sort of even keel. Um, well, and and how do you replace,
1: I mean, if you no longer have the old highs, you know, do you find that like you've gotten super into other things? Like, are you suddenly like really into exercise or anything like that? Or like, where does, where does the energy go? Do you know what I'm saying? Is it, is it, it's gotta be channeled into new things.
2: Yes. I think into helping other people, um, you know, with the same thing and, and talking to them and, um, just sort of the magic that happens when people get together who really understand each other, um, on that level. I think that for me, um, has a, has an an effect that in and of itself is almost a high.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, no. And it's also, it also seems like it would require an enormous commitment of energy. Like that's not something that you can half-ass, right? I mean, it, right. if you're going to get into... I don't know. Like that level of human interaction requires a certain seriousness of commitment, you know? Totally. It's a life. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, okay, well, hope it helps. (laughs) Totally. It's nice talking to you for five minutes or whatever. Exactly. Um, So with this book, uh, you know, heart, you're getting ready to uh, do some events, I would imagine? Yes. So I want to ask you about this because for a poet, it seems like it's particularly... Uh, critical or not critical, but part of the deal where you have to get out and you have to perform your work. Uh, yeah. Do you feel a pressure to get up there in front of people and, and read this stuff and perform it and put on a show? Like, is that part of it that you like, or do you loathe that?
2: Um, it's sort of, I, I never loathe it. Um, you know, I mean, I like, I like the sound of my own voice a lot. So, um, you know, I, I like hearing myself, um, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a poet. I'm into myself, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, anyone who still calls himself a poet in 2012, I would think, probably digs the sound of their own voice, voice to some extent. But you know, there are people who are who do have stage fright, and um, and I've actually gone through that. Like, um, there was a period where um, I did a reading. It was the first time I was ever paid to do a reading in Albany at a college, and um, I got up there and and I. Um, had sort of a panic attack. Like it was really bright and I hadn't eaten enough. So like my blood sugar was all crazy. And, um, and the thing was, is like, normally if I started feeling like that, like faint or something, you know, I could just get off the stage. Um, you know, because I'm not being paid. But I was like, oh, shit, they're paying me. Like, you can't just read three poems. Like, you got to earn your keep. So so that traumatized me for a little while because I really didn't know if I was going to be able to go on. Like, I thought maybe I was going to die kind of standing up there. It was one of those, like, panic attacks that's very physical, you know, and it coupled – it was the lights coupled with the, like, low blood sugar. Um, You know, so then after that, there was, like, a few months where every time I would read, I would get this, like – Intense surge of adrenaline, but you know you work through it, and it, and, and, a, and a surge of adrenaline that like did not feel pleasurable to me, you yeah. know, like are, um, do your that hand, felt threatening.
1: Do your hands shake or anything like that?
2: Yeah, I mean now I'm ba- luckily I'm back in sort of this cradle of being okay with it, but there was like this was um, I guess this was a year ago, and there was a period of about six months where I'd I'd get really nervous, yeah. but um, but now you know in general I'm like, hey y'all want to listen to me like. <laughs> Awesome.
1: <laughs> I get, I, you know, I get all like grumpy before reading. That's what my wife. You always do. Think. Yeah, I get a little tense, and I'm like, I, I'm like just jumpy. I I don't know what it is. I feel, uh, I just feel silly. I feel like, for some reason, I feel like I, I people want to be entertained, and I don't know if that's just a function of living in Los Angeles, but I, I never feel like reading is enough. I'm like, we, we need a band, you know like, You know what I'm saying?
2: Like, you probably do. I mean, I don't enough. know if reading is enough.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's like somebody standing up reading from their own book. It just seems like masturbation to me. So, it is. Yeah.
2: I mean, no offense um, to you as a fiction writer, but I feel like fiction is especially tough for me because po- po- poetry, if you space out, you're, you can pick up at the next one. Fiction, it's like if somebody reads a short story and you space out for the first, you know, like a paragraph you're kind of screwed you're like well i guess i'll just you know go into my head for the rest of this one
1: yeah yeah that's, that's true i mean like i i have and i have a really hard time unless i'm looking at the page you know following so if i'm at a reading i'll often have the book open so that i can at least follow along but even that's not satisfying like i like to be it's the same as when i write like i want to be in a closed space by myself with like headphones on and no distractions and that's how that's how i like to read too like i have to i can't have things happening like even if i'm at a coffee shop it's hard for me to concentrate you know because i'll start looking at everybody or um you know but i i find readings to be like it's always like a little bit goes a long way and every once in a while someone will be fantastic and you know i'll be totally riveted and it can happen so it's not like it's you know uh, it's not like it's the you know uh, and, and across the board situation <laughs> and and you know right. what, and you know what too poetry is it lends itself uh, well to performance or it lends itself better to performance and like there are you know i have friends who are poets who are like spectacular performers uh, right and that helps you know
2: well we can be very dramatic
1: are you a good performer like when you get up there are you like like a raving lunatic at the microphone or do you talk mostly like this like what's your style
2: my my only style, I you know, someone would have to else would have to tell you about myself because I really don't know what it is. My only note to myself is like I go slow, like read twice as slow as you think like it needs to be. So sometimes I think I actually maybe read too slow, but I think it's probably better to read too slow than than too fast. And also I always try to keep it short, like keep it under 12 minutes, like
0: oh God, nobody yeah. needs
2: to hear you, you know, that there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse. It's sad, you yeah. know, and yeah. I never want to be that person.
1: Right. No, exactly. That's what I feel. I feel like my heart's breaking. It's like, oh, this person like so desperately needs to be heard, but like this is too much or yes. you want to leave them. It's like show business. You want to leave them wanting more. You know, if that's possible, you want to go off while they're still like interested and then make them, you know, wish that you hadn't left.
2: (laughs) Especially because everyone knows you're up there enjoying the sound of your own voice. So it's like if you go long, then you like really are enjoying like you're really reveling in the sound of your own voice, you know, whereas if you go short, it's like, okay, you enjoyed the sound of your own voice for like, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. And then you made way for someone else to enjoy the sound of their own voice.
1: Yeah. Um, so before I let you go, I want to talk travel a little bit. Um, okay. Like, you know, you, you went from, uh, ba- the Boston area. That's tough. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you went out mm-hmm. to Boulder for like a month. And yes, why were you in Boulder for just a month? You just decided you was too small and you
2: didn't like it. Well, I did a, like a sort of weird publishing grad month long seminar out there. It was sort of my way of getting out West, okay. you know, cause like I, I thought I, you know, cause as I told you, I was like a latent, Uh, I was like a late bloomer, you know, so I was really into like Jack Kerouac and stuff. So I actually ended up driving across the country that summer, like three times. Like I drove to Boulder. um, Then I drove to San Francisco. Then I like ran out of money and like drove back to Philadelphia. And then like, it was my birthday. My parents gave me some money and I drove back out to San Francisco and then um, worked odd jobs out there. Like I worked as a grill cook and I worked as a canvasser for the Sierra club. I went door to door for them. And, uh, Yeah, and as a secretary at a tantric sex nonprofit, if you can believe that.
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's talk about this. You were a secretary (laughs) at a tantric sex nonprofit?
2: Yes, it's called Celebrations of Love. You can find them online. Um, I was a secretary in their office for a year. I I went to two workshops, but, I mean, it was like, you know, it it was pretty – People weren't actually doing it at the workshops, but it was like the new agiest thing you've ever seen. I think that's what finally shook me out of my hippie Jim Morrison sort of Pink Floyd because it, it was like, I mean, it was crazy.
1: So, okay. I, I don't even
2: know. In Marin I, County.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and, like this is this is how like detached from the world I am. Like tantric sex is just like deep breathing during sex to prolong the act for like absurd amounts of time. Is that right?
2: I don't really. I still don't know. Okay. I was there for a year, but I have no idea. Right, so you never, there were also like other. There were like other types of New Agey things there that they offered, like watsu or something, which was like you go in the water and you kind of get pulled around like it's the womb, or um, <laughs> or um, what else? I don't know. Everyone was always talking about soy and the, the perils of soy. <laughs> um, See, but, okay,
1: here's because it sounds like <laughs> we have, it sounds like we have a similar relationship to the New Age uh, stuff. Yeah. And that like, you know, it's hard not to laugh at it. And it's hard not to be uh, like, not to snicker a little bit when you think about it, especially if you've done time in a place like San Francisco or Boulder, Right. Uh, you know, like, you, you start to know the, uh, cultural milieu or whatever it is. And there's a lot to mock, but at the same time, I feel like out on that, that weird edge of things is where like a lot of interesting experiments happen and where progress often happens you know, in different fields. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's a part of me that also has, like, a real soft spot for it.
2: Totally. I mean, look, I, um, you know, I I try to meditate or pray in the morning before I go to work. Um, You know, I still have a relationship with that. And, um, you know, actually more so now than I ever did when I was, like, um, you know, drinking and reading Buddhist books. But, um, you know, and and every year I go to see this woman named Ama, who's this... um, she's considered to be a living saint she's amazing wait is she the Um, one that hugs everyone she's the hugger
1: wow so you go get hugged by ama
2: yeah well i go see her every year she comes to new york every year um i've only gotten a couple of hugs because it it takes a while to get a hug i just kind of like to sit in her presence because to me personally my experience is that it feels like um being on heroin which is really nice you know um to get that kind of but um, but I've kind of tried to stop glomming onto her for the high and, like, you know, try to be of service. Like, now I'll go and I'll um, volunteer to, like, work in their little dessert area and and sell cookies or um, do dishes because, like, it's, like, enough glomming already, you know? But
1: wait, I mean, really and truly, when you're in her presence, you feel like you are on heroin? Like, it's that palpable? Like, her goodness is emanating that strongly? Or is it something in you?
2: That's my experience. It's probably she's conjuring something. Okay, so this well, this brings us back to the new age, right? So it's like, so I'll do that. Like every year, I'll go see her when she comes to New York. But I'm not going to follow her to India and go live on her ashram because I know that in the end, it is something within me. Like it's not about, and that's just the thing I think with the whole new age thing. It's like that belief that someone else, like that, you're relying on someone else or something else or a certain way of doing things. To change you you know or when it gets or when it's being sold or marketed you know that's when it becomes like another I think that's when the problem comes in is when it's being like you know because then it can, then it becomes just another brand um so I think my relationships in new age is like comes from a place of being a seeker and really believing there is a mist there is a mystery and 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 wanting to explore that and like something higher and something that feels really amazing. That's not going to kill you. Um, you know, and all these things, but then it's like, but also knowing that like these things are, are tools to get within yourself. Um, you know, it's, and, um, and anyone, and, and, and when they're selling it, like for a lot of money or like when it's the, or when it's described as the only way that's like a warning.
1: Yeah. That's when like the, uh, the alarm bells go off.
2: Right. So the only way. So
1: what is the, can you point to one, I mean, this might be a, I hope this isn't a lame question, but can you point to an experience in your life or is there a memory that you have of a time when you felt the best? Do you know what I'm saying? Like in that kind of way where you, hmm. uh, w- where what you're seeking was accessible to you? Cause I feel like it kind of happens in moments for people. It's not something that like. Uh, most human beings or any human beings probably can can sustain at all times but have you ever glimpsed it or felt like you were connected at uh you know at a higher level
2: right like those peak experiences
1: yeah can you, do you have one or is it or does it often I mean does it happen when you're writing i mean a lot of for a lot of writers i think that's probably it you know you get that those brief flashes or those days where things are just working
2: i mean i've definitely had it i mean one ones that come to mind are um The first time I went to see Ama was really cool, I I felt that way. Um, There's a church I used to go to in San Francisco called Glide Church, it's awesome. The music is amazing and every time they would do their opening um, hymn, which is like a, it's like very blues and jazz oriented and their band is fantastic and every, I would go there every Sunday and I always felt really connected. you know, when they do their opening song there, they, they do, um, pass me not O gentle savior. And you can actually find that song on YouTube, but I like the upbeat one. Um, not there's a slow version, upbeat one. And that's, that's one of my fav- favorite songs. Um, so I can listen to that anytime and really feel like I'm rocketed back there, you know? Um, but yeah, oh yeah, there's been a lot of times, um, a lot of those experiences. Luckily, you know, I mean, that's, that's what keeps you going. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Right. So, Anyway, uh, I wish I could keep talking to you. This has been so fun and uh, so interesting, and I want to congratulate you on the new book. And thank you. Wish you luck on your tour with all your, uh, you know, events that you have planned. Um, you know, and people can go check you out at it's dot com. Correct. Yep. Okay. Well, Melissa, thanks for your time. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It was lovely speaking with you.
1: Okay, folks, that's it. That's the program. There you have it. That's Melissa Broder. Go get Meatheart. It is available now from Publishing Genius Press. And if you want to find Melissa on the web, she's at melissabroder.com. You want to find her on Twitter, her handle is at melissabroder, and she has a Facebook page. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on the Twitter. Go follow it, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listie. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check them out at killrockstars.com. And last but not least, uh, what? Envy, uh, Charlize, Theron, Michael Fassbender. Uh, sort of a strange opener there. Uh, a little bit of psychodrama. Uh, not exactly sure what that was. Uh, but now uh, you are implicated. And perhaps uh, perhaps we have shared something. And perhaps uh, you will now carry that with you into the rest of your day. Uh, that is honestly how my, my day began. That was it. That was the first few minutes uh, and I can never get it back. And that's really the point. It is an immutable fact of my history. It is burned onto my brain. It is buried in my subconscious. And there it shall remain. And uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying not to let it get to me. I'm trying to be happy for Michael Fassbender, uh, that dashing Irish millionaire movie star whose massive sex organ uh, delights audiences worldwide. Uh, good for him is what I say. I'm happy for him. I, I really am. Seriously happy for him. Nobody deserves it more. I mean it. I'm serious. Uh, Okay, I think that's it. That's enough out of me. Please remember that Joseph Heller flew 60 combat missions in World War II, and Walt Whitman's mother was illiterate. I will be back again soon with another public interaction with someone of literary merit for your enjoyment. And otherwise, I think I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to go walk around Los Angeles. I'm going to clear my head. And then... I'm going to come home and I'm going to make some voodoo dolls of everyone who won a MacArthur Genius Grant this past year, and then I'm going to rededicate myself to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world.